Everybody wants to play a bigger part. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody's wondering what we are at heart. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. Why are you waiting for tomorrow to start? This is day one. Hey, everybody, it's time for the Day One Leadership Podcast. I am your host, Drew Dudley, and my guest today is the founder of Kids Right to Know, a nonprofit that aims to educate youth about important environmental concerns with a focus on genetically modified food and the need for proper testing and labeling. So here's the list of all the cool stuff. She has been acknowledged as an emerging leader by the Clean 50 Summit in Toronto, named one of Toronto's environmental heroes by Now Magazine, recognized as one of the seven kids saving the planet right now, and included in Canada's top 20 under 20 change makers. I am thrilled to be chatting today with Rachel Parent. Rachel, how are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm awesome. I really like this job. So... (laughs) I am uh, I'm excited to talk to you and I was online trying to figure out it's always how do you introduce your guest and so I was like okay is she an activist and we talked about this before are you an activist do you like the term so originally I never considered myself an activist because it's always considered such a negative um, term because I mean in the news we always see people flipping cars and it's the crazy activist trying to make a difference but um So I referred to myself as a healthy planet watchdog or a healthy food advocate until about age 14 when I decided to finally search it up. And when I looked it up, the first definition that came up was someone who was so passionate about a topic that they try and make a difference. And at that exact moment, that's when I knew that I was an activist. And that's really what I'll be for the rest of my life. No matter where I go with my career or with my passions, I know that I'll always be an activist. So at 14 is when you finally looked it up. Yeah. So you were doing this before you were 14 is what I'm taking. So how how did how did you become an activist and what is it that has fueled your passion? Because I know people, I spent most of my early career, colleges and universities, 19, 20, 22 year olds going, I haven't found my passion. You had yours and you got yours already. How did it start? Well, basically when I was around 12 years old, uh, we were given the task of writing a speech for school. And it was a lot of work and we had to figure out something that we wanted to write on. And a lot of people were writing on topics like why I named my dog Chuck or why skiing is my favorite sport. But I really wanted to do it on something that would impact a lot of people in the room. And so I started researching things like poverty, animal cruelty, uh, factory farming, GMOs um, and our food system. And when I found out more about our food system and GMOs in depth, I realized how they really affected every other issue that I was passionate about. So that's when I started to realize I needed to do something. So I started to look around for organizations in Canada that were working on labeling so that we at least had the right to know what's in our food. And I didn't really see too many that were active. So that was the first red flag. And then I asked my peers, how many of you know what a GMO is? And nobody raised their hand and none of the teachers raised their hands. Um, So that was the second red flag. And that's exactly the moment where I knew I needed to do something about it. So I started my Twitter account and at first it was very slow. I had almost no followers. Um, And it was just about starting small and creating little change one step at a time. But I didn't want to just stop there. 
so then I wanted to create a march, and it was called the Kids' Right to Know March. Uh, we had about 250 kids and parents that showed up. Um, and when I was about 13, um, Occupy Toronto was going on at St. James Park. And this was something that really fueled me, I think. Um, we saw so many people there protesting for what they believed in. And I would often go to the media tent and ask if I could speak for people uh, or at least be broadcasted because they had a live broadcast going on. So um, that's that's what would happen there. And then I made a 48-inch apple pie for them that was non-GMO and organic. And it was a struggle to make that thing. It didn't fit in the car. Um, and we couldn't get a bakery to make it for us. So we had to make like 30 pies and piece them all together into one large pie about... Um, well, it was about 48 inches. And we brought this in as well as 68 other pies uh, for everyone to eat and to raise awareness about um, organics and non-GMO foods and the importance of eating healthy foods for our environment and our health. So let's not assume that our listeners mm -hmm. are fully versed on what we're talking about here. So what is a GMO? So you, you said, I got to write a speech mm -hmm. and you discovered GMOs. What are they? So GMOs are genetically modified organisms, and it's where they take DNA from one species and insert it into another to introduce a new trait. So this sounds really complicated, but in reality, there's only two main commercialized GMO crops right now, and that's pesticide-producing and herbicide-resistant. So pesticide-producing is basically where they take pesticides and insert it directly into the seed, so that way when it grows and a bug tries to eat the crop or whatever, um, their stomach will actually have ulcers and explode. Um, so then the bug dies. So this is a, a big issue. Then we have herbicide resistance. So farmers can spray hundreds of pounds of herbicides onto these crops without killing the plants themselves. Um, with both of these, though, we've seen an a huge increase in herbicides and pesticides, which are then going into our soil and our water, uh, contaminating our ecosystems um, and having huge impacts on our pollinators and our health. So this is what we're facing. And that's why I founded Kids Right to Know when I was um, 12, because I believe that we all deserve the right to safe, healthy foods. Uh, and we all deserve the right to know what we're putting in our bodies. After all, we live in a democracy, and yet we can't even choose the, own, the food that we're serving to our families and our friends. So that's why we have to fight for our right to know. So why, why do they do this genetic modification? Is it simply so they can grow more? Is it because they want to use... It's weird, you say they make them pesticide resistant and then they use more pesticides? Yeah, um, it's herbicide resistant. And then the thing is, is that when it's herbicide resistant, farmers can spray as much as they want on these crops. And I'm sure many farmers don't want to, but uh, spray extra. But the issue is that there's new super weeds and super bugs with the use of herbicides and pesticides. So the more you use, the more cro uh, plants are going to become resistant to that. And then you have to use more and stronger herbicides and pesticides, um, which is extremely dangerous for our environment. So let's pretend I'm utterly ambivalent about this, okay? Like I'm going through my life and like a lot of people in cities, I don't give a lot of thought to how it gets to the grocery store. I'm hungry, I want food. I don't care much about debate. I don't care one way or the other. Why should I care? Like is, is science not making everything 
better? Like, isn't it just inevitable that we're going to modify our plants? We're going to modify everything. We're going to make things smaller. Make your pitch to me why I should give a crap. Okay. <laughs> um, I think everyone should care about this issue because after all, we all eat three times a day, most of us every day. And when looking at our food, it impacts every level of our lives. It's not just about what we're eating today. It's about how it's impacting our future, how it's impacting our environment. Um, for instance, GMO soy is grown in the Amazon, um, and they're cutting down huge areas of the Amazon and our rainforest to grow genetically modified soy to feed to factory farmed animals. So that's not only impacting global warming and climate change, that's impacting how these animals are raised, how they're killed, uh, the extinction rates in the Amazon and our rainforests. Um, on top of that, GMOs have been linked to things like, uh, for our health, uh, organ damage, um, things like tumors, allergies, digestive disorders. And it's not even just about GMOs. It's the things that they spray on these crops. We have glyphosate, which is the main ingredient in herbicide uh, called Roundup. And glyphosate is registered as an antibiotic. Now, we have antibiotic resistance all over the world right now, and it's such a big issue because if we have an outbreak of some issue that we need antibiotics to fix, these antibiotics will no longer work because we've been eating them so much that the bacteria has become resistant to it. So more than anything, our food system affects every level of our lives, from poverty to our water. So much of our water is contaminated with herbicides and pesticides, and we're drinking this every single day. And like I was saying, glyphosate, which is a her like a registered herbicide, um, a registered antibiotic that's used in herbicides, uh, the WHO recently came out and said that it was a probable carcinogen and may be causing cancer in humans. If you look at the number one cause of illness for children in Canada and the U.S. that um, isn't by accident, it's cancer. So this is the, the biggest issue that we're facing is that it's connected to everything. It's connected to all of us. And the food choices that we make today are impacting our world tomorrow. And that's why we need to make the right choices. So how big a deal is this? And in, in, like, for, forgive my ignorance because I was like, well, I want to ask you. How much of the food we're eating is genetically modified? Because I know, obviously, we're trying to constantly improve the food source. How much of what I go out to the grocery store and look at is genetically modified in some way? About 70% of the food on our shelves that's processed contains genetically modified ingredients. And we're seeing new GMO crops reach our shelves every single day. I mean, we have the Arctic apple, which was recently approved, and they basically turn off a gene so that you can slice the apple open and leave it open for up to 28 days and it won't brown. And so these are not things that are going to help society in any way. Um, it's really just made so that the corporations can make more money and more profits. By selling these GMO crops that are patented, farmers have to buy them year after year after year and they have to buy the herbicides and pesticides that go along with them. Um, so for the corporations, this is jackpot. They make tons of money with it. But we have other crops coming out too, like alfalfa. 
And alfalfa, even farmers that are growing genetically modified crops, they don't want it. Alfalfa is such a big problem for farmers because it's fed to most of our livestock. But not only that, it spreads very quickly. Um, it pollinates like that. Um, so it's super quick. And with this, it has the potential to contaminate almost all of our organic dairy, meat products, um, even poultry. So we have a, a huge problem on our hands. And the thing, too, is that alfalfa naturally keeps weeds down on its own. So there's no need to make it herbicide resistant because farmers don't need to spray it with herbicides. So it really is a pointless crop. Then we have salmon coming out. And the genetically modified salmon is the first animal to reach our markets. Um, and it grows much faster, much bigger, and it's very aggressive. So if it was ever released out into streams or rivers or oceans, it could kill natural salmon or breed with natural salmon and contaminate all the salmon that we have that we naturally uh, fish or farm from. So that's what we're facing right now in terms of GMOs. So you say it's approved, the Arctic apple is approved. Who approves it? And this is my assumption that if it's on the shelves, somebody tested it. So obviously there's an approval process. So if you come up with a new genetically modified organism, I'm assuming it goes through some sort of testing to make sure that when I eat it, I won't get a third eye. Am, <laughs> am I wrong about this? Like, what is the approvals? Because I'm assuming if it's there's 70% on the shelves, we're pretty certain it's not killing us, I, I would think. Mm -hmm. So I actually, okay, just to go off of that, I met with the health minister in 2015, um, Rona Ambrose, our previous health minister, and I asked, who's regulating GMOs? And she said, well, it's not my responsibility. It's the Health Canada official's responsibility. So she set up a meeting with me to meet with the Health Canada officials and the scientists. So I met with them and they said, well, it's not really our responsibility either in terms of labeling. Uh, that would be the CFIA, which is the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, um, or Rona Ambrose, our health minister. Uh, so everyone is pointing at everyone else. In terms of regulation and testing, uh, the Health Canada officials said that the responsibility for testing is simply on the corporations and that they review the science from the corporations because it's the corporation's best interest to have safe, healthy food for us all. Now, these foods are not tested by Health Canada or the FDA. Um, and because they're patented, Monsanto and the other biotech companies don't let independent researchers study them. Also, Monsanto's tests are maximum of 90 days. And so that doesn't tell us the potential health or environmental risks that may come along with these GMO crops. And when I was talking to the health, minister, uh, the health Canada officials, they actually said that a 14-day study was enough to determine safety. So 70% of our food are genetically modified. There's no actual group that makes sure that before a genetically modified organism goes on the shelves that, it, that it's safe over the long term for human consumption. And the only people who do are the ones who grow it. Exactly. And uh, from previous studies that we've seen on GMOs, the health risks actually come after the 90 days. So what we're seeing is Monsanto, who won't publish their studies, onto uh, even to allow independent researchers to review them, um, it's is really affecting us all because we're eating this food that's never really been proven safe. And I actually went to the Monsanto shareholder meeting in this January, and I was able to talk to the CEO Hugh Grant uh, at Monsanto, 
And I asked him, you know, if you're so proud of your product and if you truly believe that it is safe for us all to eat and your studies are so sound, why don't you provide the studies on your website for independent researchers to review? If they're so safe and you have nothing to hide, then you should be proud to publish them on your website. And he basically came back with um, some crappy response (laughs) saying that, you know, I don't know enough about world hunger yet and that he's been working this business for 40 years and he knows more about the true issues that our world is facing, that um, these are completely safe, that although they only test them, they are one of the most regulated products in the world and that because of this, there's no need to put it on the website, which is a completely ridiculous answer. You, you said earlier, like, it's a pointless crop. There's no need to do it. But, and, and forgive my ignorance, but don't GMOs save lives? And this may just be it, but didn't Norman Borlaug get a Nobel Peace Prize for creating a GMO that is credited with saving a billion lives? So don't, isn't it worthwhile doing some of this? What what he did in the past with wheat was very different than what we're seeing right now. This is taking um, DNA from completely different species um, than what we've seen in the past. Now you can mix species from animals, viruses, bacteria, um, and mix it with something that it would not normally go with. In the past, we've seen natural plant breeding, and this happens all the time through hybridization. But now it's like mixing a cat and a dog. It just wouldn't happen. Not only that, uh, studies have actually shown that GMO crop yields are no better than conventional crops. And that over time, in fact, they go down because of monocrops and the fact that the soil becomes so much less healthy with the amount of herbicides and pesticides and GMOs. So it really has no benefit in terms of yields. But on top of that, we're looking at things like Argentina, Africa, um, South American countries, uh, as well as African countries. They don't want these GMO crops. These crops have been forced onto them. And the other thing, too, is that farmers oftentimes don't choose to have GMO crops. Sometimes uh, seeds fly over from neighboring fields. And here in Canada, if GMO uh, seeds end up in your fields and you didn't buy them, Monsanto can sue you and take away your farm. If the wind blows them there? If the wind blows them there because they're patented. And because you didn't invest in them or you didn't buy them, you don't own the patent rights. So this is a huge issue we're facing. And even Percy Schmeiser, who um, he's here in Canada, he was growing canola and they found GMO canola in his fields. And he was sued and he actually won the case against Monsanto. But this is one of the very few cases where that actually works out. In most cases, uh, the farmer is either forced into growing GMO crops and having to buy the seeds from Monsanto or the other biotech companies year after year, or they have to get rid of their farm or they lose all their money. So a lot of farmers don't actually choose to. And in Argentina, there's such a big issue. People are getting so sick from the herbicides and the pesticides. Um, they're, they're having a massive problem there. And in Africa, people are pro- like protesting and saying that they don't want it because they'd rather have the small amount of food that they have now than to be corporately controlled by these huge companies. So most activists are battling against a status quo. 
And for you, that's the fact that GMOs are being created. We have no choice in the fact that we're consuming them. Uh, we have no awareness of the fact that we're consuming them. What would those and every arguments got two sides? So if I played this for somebody who is very pro-GMO, those who believe things should continue as they are, what would they tell me? What's their side of the argument? Because I'm assuming you're well-versed in it. Yeah, they'd tell me that it would feed the world. That's the main argument. Um, and like I was saying, it's completely not true. There are many studies, even the UN um, in 2011, they said that the way to feed the world was not through industrial agriculture, but instead through um, helping smallholder farmers develop their non-GMO and organic practices through sustainable practices. And they found that in those areas where these practices were introduced, um, climate change in the areas were mitigated, poverty was alleviated, and food production was doubled. So this is the w real way forward in feeding the world, a sustainable, true way, regenerative way, uh, to create a better, more amazing world. And the fact is that agriculture has such a key part in mitigating climate change as well through carbon sequestration, which is basically like we always hear that trees suck up carbon and then they make it into oxygen. It's the same thing. All plants do that. But through planting more organic produce, uh, organic farms, we can mitigate climate change and bring more carbon back into the soil where it really belongs and more oxygen back into our air where it belongs. So let me ask you the genie question. And I actually learned this question through a, a, someone who taught me solution-focused problem-solving. It's like, we're always dealing with issues. And he said, if you're facing something in your life, ask yourself this question because it'll at least clarify maybe what you're looking for. So I, I love this. The genie question is, before you went to bed tonight, a genie appears to you and says, okay, when you wake up tomorrow, mm -hmm. everything will be exactly the way that you would like it. You just have to describe to me exactly <laughs> what that would look like. Mm -hmm. So if the genie showed up and said, Rachel, when it comes to the world... When it comes to Canada, the U.S., everything you're talking about, everything will be just the way you want it tomorrow. Just explain to me what that looks like. What would you tell the genie? Okay, well, I would tell the genie that I would like a world where I wouldn't have to worry about whether the soil will be too contaminated in the next few years to grow good crops to feed our world. I would like a world where you don't have to worry about whether the bees and butterflies are going to die off because of the pesticides and herbicides. Uh, I would like a world where corporations don't own farmers, don't own consumers, aren't forcing us to eat food that we don't want to eat. And I like a world where we have the freedom to choose what we want to eat and the freedom to choose what we're going to eat and what we're going to serve our families and our friends. A world that's beautiful, that's grown with regenerative farming practices, um, and a world where everything is in balance and there, there isn't anyone that has more power than another in terms of controlling people because right now Monsanto has such a grip over our consumers, over our citizens. I mean, even look at Vermont. Um, they had mandatory GMO labeling. It went into effect July 1st. And the government in the U.S. passed the Dark Act, which we dub Deny Americans the Right to Know. And it basically, instead of putting labeling, they put QR codes 
which makes it so much more difficult for consumers to find out if their food really does contain GMO foods. Um, like a busy mother, picture this, having to go through the supermarket with three kids and having to scan each product to maybe find out if it contains GMOs is not even mandatory. And so they've introduced this and it has a lot more implications. Uh, on top of that, many people in the U.S. do not have smartphones, so they can't scan um, their the products. And so it's discriminatory against a large variety of people. And this is where we see corporations really influencing our government. And I think that's another thing I'd like to see, that corporations don't have the power to lobby our government because there should be at no time anyone who would be allowed to put corporate wealth ahead of human health and the environment. I don't think that's just or right. So are you anti-GMO? Do you want there to be no more GMOs or... Is it just, you just want them labeled? And and I guess, have you accepted there's going to be GMOs, so now you're fighting the label battle? Or is it like, you'd rather there's no GMOs, period, but if you can't get that, you just want them labeled? And what's the pushback on labeling? I mean, if you say, okay, fine, grow what you want, put whatever you want in the food, keep it 70%, just tell us that, that what's in it. What's the pushback on that? Well, the thing is, is that... Um I know that there are GMOs out there, and for a long time, there probably will be. Eventually, we'll probably get to a point where we realize it's not a sustainable practice. But at this point in time, there's still a lot of pushback against the idea that GMOs aren't so great as the corporations frame them to be. So that's where we've come in with labeling, is that at least it's an alternative for people who don't want to buy them and who don't want to support them. With GMO labeling, you can then decide if you do want to eat these foods or not. That being said, there is still a large pushback. Uh, We've had bill after bill in the U.S. be pushed down, and it started off with California Proposition 37, and that was actually around the time that I started getting into the work that I do. I was around 12 when it started coming out, and I went to California to visit people who were fighting for it. And it would have been so incredible, but Monsanto and the other biotech companies uh, and junk food companies spent $47 million to stop GMO labeling. And it's because they don't want people to know what's in their food. They know that it causes issues, and they know that people don't want it. So if it's labeled, of course people are going to try and avoid it as much as possible, uh, which would then decrease their sales. And they've already had a plummet in sales. Um, So they don't want that more and more. And that's why we've seen Washington, California, Vermont, so many bills fill because corporations are spending millions and millions of dollars to try and stop our simple democracy, our simple transparency and our right to know from choosing the foods that we eat. Do you honestly believe that if they put GMO on the front that fewer people would eat it? It's not that I, 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 of course, would look at it and go like, yeah, maybe not. But do you, don't you think at some point where just we all know there's crap in it? Do you, do you really believe, or like, do you have any backing to say, yeah, if you put GMO labels on it, people will avoid it? If you look at Europe, that's a good case study. Um, oh, do they label? They do. The entire European Union labels. And actually, 64 countries around the world already require mandatory GMO labeling. Canada and the U.S. are the only two industrialized nations that don't. So we're really behind. (laughs) we got to get on this. But um, 
yeah, they, they've experienced a huge pushback on GMOs. Once they were labeled, people started more and more avoiding them to the point where most of the crops grown in Europe are not genetically modified anymore because they make the food differently there than they make it here because the people demanded it. Here we have, for a march against Monsanto, maybe 5,000 people come out to a march. And we're like, yes, that's a great number. There, you get 40,000 people out to a march because they want to know what's in their food. And we're going to get to a point here in Canada where that happens too. But we need everyone to get active and to get inspired and to realize that their food choices don't just impact them. It impacts everyone around you. So we we all got to work together. And actually, there is a bill coming out in Canada uh, called Bill C-291, and it will be to label GMOs. So I really encourage everyone to get out there and to ask their local member of parliament, their MPs, to support this bill. It's called Bill C-291. So the first time I came across you, it was because of a viral YouTube video. And they didn't even have your name on it. It was just, you know, famous person gets yelled at by girl. <laughs> um, you ended up on a debate with uh, television personality Kevin O'Leary, who our Canadian listeners will know from The Dragon's Den, American from The Shark Tank. How on earth did you end up on television going nose to nose with a 60-year-old personality <laughs> like Kevin O'Leary? Well, that's an interesting story. So I was, uh, I was watching TV one night and I saw Kevin O'Leary on TV and he was saying that anyone who was marching against Monsanto was stupid and if they didn't like GMOs, they should just stop eating. And I had just come back from the march against Monsanto. So I was all riled up and ready to go. And I saw him saying that. And I just, I couldn't let it go. It was stuck in my mind. The fact that he thought that if you didn't like GMOs, you should just stop eating. And he also added, that way we can get rid of them. And that really struck me and it hit me hard. So I decided to challenge him to a debate. And I, I never thought he would accept. I just thought, you know what, might as well try. And then even if it doesn't happen, at least people maybe will find out more about GMOs if it goes out on YouTube somewhere. So I challenged him. And uh, at my old school, I had a rough time a little bit. A lot of the people weren't so nice. And so I had just gotten back from a kind of rough day at school. And I got into the car. And my mom goes, I have some good news and some bad news, but it's the same thing. And I looked over, she goes, Kevin O'Leary accepted. And I didn't know how to feel about that. I was, uh, I didn't know whether to cry or to be happy, maybe a little bit of both. But what I didn't know going in was that regardless of how it went, I knew it would change my life and I hoped that it would change others' lives. And so... That's how that happened. And then um, I had a couple of months to be able to prepare stuff. But we thought that it was going to be a three-minute debate. And the day of, they called and said instead of three minutes, it'd be an 11-minute debate. Nothing that takes place in three minutes is a debate either. Exactly. But in today's world, we're like, oh, yeah, 140 characters fired back <laughs> is a debate. But Exactly. So it ended up being 11 minutes, which was like... Wow, that's a lot longer of time. And it actually ended up being 13. So we, we went a lot over time considering it's television. But it was just such an interesting experience. And even weeks after, we were getting about 2,000 emails a day uh, thanking us um, for going out there and 
speaking about the issues that affect us and even getting letters from people saying I had allergies that were really bad. And when I went off of GMOs, they went away. So thank you for for telling me about this issue. Uh, so many letters of support, so many inquiries about what we do. And I just hope that somewhere out there we change someone uh, for the positive way. And one of the things that struck me is that O'Leary intimated that maybe some of your passion was a result of youthful naivete, right? Like you're just not old enough to know any better. Mm -hmm. And perhaps your thinking would change as you get older. How has there been a change in your beliefs? Were there things that you used to think you're like, oh, I was wrong about that? Are there things that you've become more convinced of? Was he right in any way about that? I think, I don't think he was right in any way about it. I think I've grown a lot as a person, but my views are still very much the same. And I I know more about this topic than I did four years ago. Um, I've learned so much over the past few years. And I, I feel so honored to be a part of this movement. So I, I definitely think that he was wrong in the fact that I would change my views. Uh, I'm a very stubborn person after all. <laughs> but um, I think, I don't think my views will ever change because after all, I know that in my own small way, I'm hopefully trying to change the world and that's all that I can hope for. How do you perceive your youth impacts your mission? And we haven't mentioned it this far in the interview because I don't, I guess it's relevant, but I wanted people to hear you for some time before. How old are you? I'm 17. You're 17. So how do you perceive your youth impacts your mission? Do you get a lot of that condescension, this idea that, oh, well, your passion is admirable, but misguided? Yeah, yeah, we, we get that sometimes. Um, when people hear that I'm 17, sometimes they don't take me as seriously. It depends. There's like 90% of people are very excited that a young person is speaking out about an issue. And then there's those 10% um, who go against my cause because they're either pro-GMO or have invested interest in in biotech companies or they, they support GMOs in every way possible. So, of course, you're always going to get the pushback. But I think that um, my age doesn't matter. I think that no matter what age you are you can make a difference in this world. And regardless of age, uh, race, uh, religious background, financial status, it doesn't matter. We all have the same power to make a difference in this world. And I think not only we have the power, but I think we have the responsibility. And that if we don't take action now, who will? We're getting to a point in our world where we all need to get active and to realize that we can't keep going the same way that we are. The old views that we have on our world with profit over people and our planet won't keep working. And we need to change our model of how we run our world because we can't keep running in those same days. Um, after all, it's us, my generation, that's going to be affected the most. And we already are seeing that with more health issues, more environmental issues than we've ever seen before. So it's what stage you're at, not what age you're at. Exactly. <laughs> so what sort of advice would you provide to other young leaders who are trying to navigate a world where leadership is often seen as a domain of the older and experienced? Like you've lived through this. So if there's young leaders out there saying, okay, I want to make a difference, but I keep getting dismissed because I'm not old enough. What are some tips you'd give them? 
so there's a quote that I, I go by, and it's by Rupert Stevens. And the quote is, always leave the earth better than you found it. And I've lived by this quote for the past five years or so. And I think it's so true. I think it's something that we all need to live up to and that we should all have in mind with every decision that we make. I think that every day when we wake up, we have the opportunity to make the world a more beautiful place than it was the day before. Through our own little decisions, through whether we decide to ride a bike to school or take the car, or whether we decide to eat something with GMOs or decide to buy something organic, or whether we decide to buy recycled clothing or new clothing. It, every little decision that we make has such an impact. And I encourage everyone, just speak to your friends, speak to your family, um, get out there, get active, sign petitions, uh, go to a march, start your own march. It may seem really daunting, and I understand that, um, especially in a world where we've said that people with the accomplishments are so much older but that shouldn't hold you back at any level because I don't think age is a barrier to accomplishments. I think age is actually a benefit. You can, you can be any age and you can make such a huge difference. Um, and that's where we have to look at it in the way that just taking advantage of every single moment. I think that's such a big thing too. I mean, we've all become so entranced with technology and that's so great. I mean, technology is a great way to spread awareness about issues. And I encourage anyone who really wants to get into an issue to take part in social media in any way possible. But we also need to enjoy every moment that we have. Because after all, us on earth, this is all that we have. And so realizing that every little bit of nature is sacred, life is sacred. And like, I think one thing that I learned on this journey is how amazing every little thing is. Looking at a seed and realizing that it has the potential to feed thousands of people. One seed can multiply into a thousand other seeds. Just little things as simple as that can um, brighten your day or brighten your world or give you hope for the future. So my encouragement is get out there, take action, and realize the potential that life has and the opportunity that life has because that'll lead you a long way. Like after something that uplifting, I almost hate to ask about this, <laughs> but you mentioned social media and you're an activist and any activist, anybody who stands up for anything easily becomes a target today and mm -hmm. a target that's incredibly easy to attack from a distance and I can think people can hear my disdain for social media right now in some ways. <laughs> but it's not. it doesn't take much digging to find out there are people who don't like you. And it doesn't. there are a lot of negative things that are written online. Were you ready for it? And how have you learned to deal with it? Because, like, I just did a quick glance. Like, just looking at your TED Talk. Like, I did a TED Talk on be nice to people. Like, that was it. <laughs> And there were negative crap in my timeline. You actually took a stand on something and beyond that in Twitter. Were you ready for that when you started to do this? And how have you come to deal with that? Okay, so <laughs> um, I don't think I was ready for it technically. Like, I, I don't think that I was opposed to it. But when I did the Kevin O'Leary debate, I never expected it to go far. I actually, I was at camp um, for a couple of days. And then I left camp 
to go do the debate and I went back for two weeks. So I had no clue what was going on back home at all. And then my parents came to pick me up and they go, guess how many views your debate has? And I was like, oh, 100. <laughs> and they go, 500,000. I was like, what the heck? How did this happen? So then I went to another camp and when they came to pick me up, they said, uh, your debate now has 2 million views. And this was in the span of about a month. And I, I never, ever expected it to go that far. We're at about 8 million views now. And so it's gone crazy. I, I never expected it to go that far. But after that, I think I was ready for it. I don't think I was ready for the initial, like, wow, it came out of nowhere. But after that, it's it's hard to say I wasn't ready for it. Because the thing is, is that... I knew by making a change in the world, you were always going to have opposition. And that's the same with everybody. Every activist out there, everyone who speaks out about an issue is going to have somebody that says that they don't agree with them. Um, but at the same time, I think that the further I got into it, the more passionate I became and the more opposition I saw, the more I realized that it was just another opportunity to change somebody's mind. And so I think the anger turned into determination. And um, that's where a lot of my will and my, my stubbornness and my passion for this issue comes from. The fact that so much of our media and so much of social media has corporate control. And that's why we need to um, continue with the work that we do and continue to teach the general public about the fact that our food makes a difference. So if you toss out the usual unfortunately, the fact that it's usual, misogynist, monosyllabic nonsense of the trolls online, Twitter, and, and, and posts after videos. It seems the most common charge that you're being used and manipulated by other people. Mm -hmm. Like O'Leary basically argued in the, in the debate on television. Uh, an article in the Huffington Post said you're being manipulated as a popular puppet to push bad science and unvetted products. Yep. From the other side, there's this sensational headline that claimed Monsanto was targeting you. And if you dive into that, that's not entirely true. All that being said, I wanted to ask you this. Do you ever stop feeling like a person and instead feel that you're just a symbol being used by either side of these debates? No. No? <laughs> I um, I don't listen to the negatives very much. I think it's a waste of my time. Um, at this point, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because after all, regardless of what somebody else says that may be negative about me, I know it's not true. And uh, we've had many people target us. From the moment I put up my website, it was hacked five times within the first two weeks um, with some terrible things. People were posting, like hacking our website and posting things like pornography that were really bad on it. Uh, they were also posting um, terrible images of dead animals, uh, Latin curses. So that was in the first couple of weeks of having our website up, and we've had this ever since. Our website is obviously more secure now, but the fact is that I have worked so hard to get to the point that we are at, and I have been targeted the entire way. People write articles about me on the monthly, um, and none of it is true. I read it and I laugh. It's so funny. Um, people say I'm being controlled by other people, and you really think that a 17-year-old teenager is going to allow other people to control her? Ha! That is a good one. Um, <laughs> I am so stubborn, that wouldn't happen. But the thing is, is that I, I'm not the kind of person that would allow people to control me. And people get this mixed-up view 
about me without even meeting me. Um, we have trolls on Twitter all the time saying I'm controlled by family members. When uh, all of our funding comes from the public, which is very slow. We don't get that much funding. Uh, so we work with what we have. And it's just little by little, step by step. Um, Kevin Fulta uh, and Monsanto's PR company, um, they were plotting to create videos to go against things that I said. So everything like that, we've had a setback each time. But I think with each setback, we've had two steps forward. And that's how I keep looking at it, is that there aren't negatives in this. Uh, there are things that people say negative about me, but you just got to block it out at a certain point and realize that their opinion of you really doesn't matter and won't change you in the long term. Is there room for nuance in activism? Like so much of the debate happens in soundbites, so much happens in 140 characters or on social media. And I often will say to people if they post on Facebook, email me because I will not engage in a debate on social media because then it's not actually about understanding. It's simply about winning in the eyes of the people who read the debate. But it so much seems to be about treating the other side as an enemy. The other side has nasty motivations. Do you see those that support the widespread use of GMOs or push back against labeling as the enemy? How do you perceive them? Okay, so I don't see them as the enemy, obviously, but, well, I don't see some of them as the enemy. I'll put it that way. I think that a lot of people are misinformed. Um, a lot of people are corporately controlled. So some people don't really know both sides of the science. They only look at one side. And I've looked at both sides, and I, I obviously chose this side. Um, and I see a lot more risk. So I don't see anybody as an enemy, but I see a closed-mindedness as an enemy. Um, a closed-mindedness to accept the fact that the decisions you're making could be harming me and our future and our generations to come. And that's what I see as the enemy. I see apathy as an enemy. Uh, some people just don't care to know about the fact that our food has an impact. And to me, that that's a huge problem. And I, I see people who target others for their opinions as enemies too. Because I, I don't go after people who are, are pro-GMO. I think that everyone is entitled to their own opinion. As long as you've researched both sides um, and have understood both sides, then if you choose one or the other, that's up to you. But I do not see it as a plausible reaction to go after other people like people have come after me. And I, I think that that is morally wrong. Um, so I see that action as, a, as an enemy. All right, let's, let's get to the day one idea. Okay. And so this is, this is odd for me because usually when I say to a guest, okay, go back to your first day of high school, it, you weren't still in high school. <laughs> um, but let's imagine that let's go back or, or let's say that day one was the day you were given the assignment to give the speech. Mm -hmm. So that's even before high school. And now you get to sit down with that version of Rachel on that day. And, uh, you get to say to her, okay, here are three things about the world that I've learned in the short six, five years since that happened. What would you tell her to be, what would three things about the world you've learned since that day that you'd want to pass on to that day one version of yourself? Um, the world is an amazing place and it has so much to offer, but always be 
aware of what you're doing, the impact that you're having, uh, and realize that with every decision you're making, you're having a possible change on the world. Um, Another thing is, again, the quote from Rupert Stevens. I had no clue back then what it was, so I definitely tell myself that. Always leave the earth better than you found it. Um, And not related to activism, I tell myself not to take what people say too seriously. I guess it does relate to it because trolls. Um, But I think like throughout grade seven and eight, there was a a rougher time for me. So I, I understand now not to take people too seriously but uh back then I think that would have been a really good um thing for me to have to have confidence and to understand your self-worth what if you could give her a question and you say all right here's a question I'm going to pose to you and every day for the rest of your life before you before you go to sleep Mm -hmm. make sure you answer this what question would you give her I probably ask myself um each day did you do your best? Because I think throughout this whole journey, it's not about changing the world by yourself. I think that we're all in this together, obviously. I mean, we're global citizens. Um, We have to unify and make the world a better place. But personally, I think just by taking small actions and doing your best at what you do, that's what makes the real change. Because I think change starts with the individual. Once we change as people, then the world can change collectively. So I'd say, I'd ask myself, did you do your best every day? And then, yeah. What it, the change means with the individual, everybody listening to this, if you could say, here are three things I want you to do tomorrow, tomorrow's day one on your mission mm-hmm. to change. What would you tell them? What would you ask them? What would you make sure they did? Uh, I would ask everyone to find something that you care about. I mean, it doesn't have to be a food issue. It doesn't have to be about climate change or about factory farming. I mean, whatever whatever issue you care about the most, find that and realize that and do research on it. And then that's the first step. And then the second step is get active and talk to your friends, talk to your family. Um, do something that is outrageous, maybe, to get attention about it. And... The last step is is just realizing that every step you take with it is going to make a difference. So whether it be posting on social media or creating a march or signing petitions, whatever you're doing, you're making a difference. And I, I think the key part is that we have so many issues in our world right now. And of course, there are tons of people making a difference about them and taking action. But we still don't have enough. We need to get all 7 billion people interested in making a difference and we're gonna get to that but of course we're starting small but that's why I think every person needs to become an activist in their own life and like I was saying before an activist is somebody who cares passionately about something to want to make a difference and that can just be in a small way from cutting out meat in your diet to try and cut down on water usage Um, that's one little step that you can create to make a difference in the world Uh, or even buying recycled clothing or only buying organic foods. These are all little actions that we can all take. Uh, And I think that's why becoming an activist in your own life is so important because without us all being activists in our own lives, how can we be activists on the main stage? So here's the, here's this odd question I like to ask people. Imagine someone followed you around for 30 days out of your life 
and they see everything you do, public, private, online, uh, how you interact with everyone. Know them, don't know them, like them, don't like them. At the end of those 30 days, if I sat that person down and said, you followed Rachel around for a month, what are the values she stands for in your mind? What values does she use whenever she has to make decisions in her life? If you've been the woman you want to be for those 30 days, what values do you hope that person can identify through watching you? Just being the best person I can be, I think. Um, My main values is doing the best I can do, being the best that I can be possibly, uh, and being kind to everyone. I think that's such a key part for me. I don't think anybody should ever feel left out. Um, Everyone should always be included. And I think that's where my activism came out of too. Um, the fact that everyone should be included in our right to be able to have a clean, healthy planet and clean, healthy food. So that's where some of my passions came out of as well. And if someone was to follow me around for 30 days, that'd be real interesting. (laughs) Be a lot of time on Twitter, a lot of time on emails, but, um, I, I would hope that they would see that I just try and be the kindest, um, person possible, uh, that I try and be inclusive and that I simply try and do my best every day because that's the most you can do just to try. And that's, uh, that's, I think what everyone should do. Just try your best. Are you hopeful? Cause I, I remember earlier you said, I think one day we're going to just discover that this isn't sustainable. Are you hopeful this is, or do you feel you're tilting at windmills? I, I I'm hopeful. I think, uh, the most we can do is hope because People come up to me all the time and they go, Rachel, what's the point of even trying anymore? Trump won. Um, Our government isn't doing too much on agriculture. We're not getting anywhere with these marches. Like, what are we doing? And I I look people in the eye and I say, you know what? By being an an activist, what do you have to lose? At this point in our world, we don't have much to lose. We've reached a point where climate change is at a high uh, agriculture is not the safest place right now. And our world issues are expanding more and more, more and more poverty, um, more malnutrition. So we don't have anything to lose, but we have so much to gain. There's always a way forward from here. Um, but we can't go back any further. And that's why by trying, at least you know that you're not going to go back any more than we already have. I'm, uh, I just relaunched a new version of the blog called uh, Shit That's Not True. <laughs> and uh, in that, we're trying to look at cultural cliches or things that get taught, things that get repeated uh, over and over again that people find a flaw in. And they're like, man, if I go back to day one, I would tell that version, don't listen to this. Mm-hmm. What's yours? Life is short. Um, of course, I mean, it feels short sometimes. And you look at life... Like, I only have 80 years. What am I going to do with it? I mean, 80, 90, 70, I don't know, whenever a person lives until. And how I look at it is you have 80 years to accomplish things. I mean, if you look at it every single moment of the day, you have an opportunity. So that's a long time. Um, Days are 24 hours. You've got 24 hours to work on something that you're passionate about or something that you want to take an action on. And I mean, even in the past five years, it's felt like it's gone by like that. And I don't even realize 
what we've done. When I when I go back and I look at the interviews and the amount of uh, things that us as an organization or myself have done, I don't remember half of them. And then I look at the media kit and I'm like, wow, that was a long time ago. But we've done a lot over the past five years. And I think it's taking that moment to look back and realize how much we've accomplished uh, as individuals and how much we have yet to accomplish and how much we still can accomplish uh, with the amount of time that we have. And no person is too old or too young to accomplish something ever. And so that's why I think life is too short isn't too true because there's so much time to achieve as much as we want to achieve. Life is the longest thing that any of us will ever do. Exactly. So you mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, if someone followed you up 30 days, they see a lot of being on social media and Twitter. (laughs) And you must look around. I mean, you must miss school to go out and do these things. You must look around and see other 17-year-olds who basically spend their day on social media, chilling out, when you see it. What's the response? Is it, man, sometimes I wish I could do that? Or is it, why aren't you doing something? How do you feel? Because I know it's really hard. Like, we don't know who first discovered water, but we're pretty sure it wasn't a fish. Like, you don't, if it's your whole reality, it's all you've ever known. Yeah. But you must have figured out by now that you're not a normal 17-year-old. <laughs> and when you look at those who are, is your, like, is there envy or is there sort of frustration? There's more frustration, I think. Uh, It's not so much envy because I still get to be a normal teenager. I still get to have, you know, my own time with friends and that sort of thing. But um, I think I'm more frustrated in terms of when people don't understand that they can make a difference or they're apathetic towards the fact that there are issues in the world. Um, I have people in our school who don't even know about the Dakota pipeline going on right now. Um, And so it's just about creating that awareness and trying to get them to understand that with, with this information, you can do something. It's not just about receiving the information, but it's about how you use it. Um, The other day, my friend found out about the Yulin dog festival and she was very upset. And I said, well, okay, take that anger and that upset that you have right now and turn that into something plausible make a difference in the world and she was like well what can I do I'm not in China like I can't I can't fly across the world to do that and I said you know what what you can do is you can sign petitions and you can create letters and send them to the government in China you can there's so much that you can do in little individual actions that'll make a difference and um, with that she understood. And so she wrote a letter. And so just little things like that, trying to get your peers to to take action on things that they care about, because they may not care about agriculture as much as I do. Obviously, I think everyone should, but some people just aren't to the point yet where they see that it's a big issue. Um, But once we get everyone to take action on these issues, then our world starts to become a more beautiful and wonderful place for us all. So what's next after, say, graduation? Well, I was thinking um, going to a law program and then eventually becoming an environmental lawyer. That was the thought. Uh, We'll see how it goes. I'm also very interested in journalism and broadcast journalism. So I'm kind of deciding between the two and seeing where I'll go from there. Yeah. So you're going to school, you figure? 
I think so. I might be taking a gap year. I'm not 100% sure yet. I'd like to, in the future, write a book. Um, That's one of my goals. And I'd like to definitely continue with the activism. Right now, we're working on supporting the Bill C-291 and trying to get that out as much as possible because it's so important for all Canadians. We have the opportunity right now um, to get GMO labeling for Canada. This is revolutionary for us. So we got to work as much as we can for this. And uh, continuing with speaking and, yeah, see where the future goes. I'm excited to see what will happen with everything. Well, so am I because it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite the right. It's been a couple of years, I guess, I met you because uh, you were a speaker at TEDx Toronto back in uh, 2014 mm-hmm. and uh, I was hosting so I had the chance there and it's uh, I wasn't sure when I, I watched the video I was like I wonder if Kevin O'Leary's right I wonder if we're going to see somebody who gets distracted by life and it just seems as if you've gotten more and more focused as you've gotten a little bit closer so a uh, little sorry gotten a little bit older closer to I don't know closer to death whatever but <laughs> That was a little dark, Drew, way to end the, the podcast. But thanks for, for coming out and and sort of sharing what drives you. And I've talked to, you're the first activist on the podcast. Oh, uh, I, I realized, oh, first for uh, everything. there is. And I think, I got to admit, I think it's because I had some negative experience with activists back when, you know, I was at university because I remember saying to one, they were fighting for free tuition. And I said, well, How? Because I said, like, how? That's, it's a good idea, how? And they said, it's not our job. It's not our job to provide solutions. It's our job to demand them. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, to hell with that. <laughs> like, that's why I asked, is there nuance in activism? Is it only about raising issues or is it about solving issues? It's definitely about solving them, yeah. I think. Because you can provide problems all you want. But without providing a solution, there's no room for hope. And I think hope is such an integral part of activism. That's why we are all activists because otherwise, why would we be fighting for these issues if we didn't have hope that there could be a better future? So that's why we have to provide solutions and create more hope within other people so then they become activism, uh, interested in activism too. Well, what I loved is you said, you know, pick something you care about and then research the hell out of it. Yeah. And like make sure, because someone once told me the only reason to know anything is to then try to disprove it. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is you end up believing so many fewer things, but the things that you believe, you can believe in wholeheartedly and with little doubt. And you can be so much more confident when people come after you for them. You've been like, hey, attack my ideas all you want. I've spent most of my life doing that. And this is what I've still come to believe. So I, I guess I could close with that. Do you spend time attacking your own ideas and going, am I sure about this? Because if you're putting them out, I'm assuming you must. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I definitely do. I make sure that everything I'm researching also has a second side. So then we can see both sides of the argument and then we can see which side is more sound. So whenever I'm finding a new um, piece of research, then we can see both sides and realize that that's the other thing actually I wanted to touch on is that when you're researching, make sure that you're finding out who's funding the studies that you're looking at. Because a lot of the studies that we see are funded by big biotech companies in terms of our food. Um, so make sure that you're looking for, for studies that are uh, like proven and that they're third-party research. And that's what I always try to do to make sure that you're as unbiased as possible and making sure that you're giving information that's proper to everyone. 
Rachel, thank you so much for, for coming here because I'll tell you, whatever side you come down on, on a debate, on any debate, being around people that are this passionate, I just absolutely adore. And someone who also approaches big issues facing the world with hope is what I is I think a fundamental definition of leadership. And I picked the, the three guests I had after the American election very specifically. I picked you and Patricia Wilson and Stephanie Dixon because that's there are problems in the world and we are going to find an individual way on, on a person by person level to simply decide we're gonna do our best to make it better. And that I really like sharing and my job is awesome. So thanks for coming out and making it amazing today. Thank you so much for having me. And with that, we've come to the end of another Day One Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much to Rachel Parent for joining us this week. Thanks to all of you as we come to the end of 2016 for being a part of the Day One Leadership community. It has been an amazing ride. If you can help us by giving us a five-star review and helping us get a few more listeners, that would be huge. Check us out on dayoneleadership.com. Follow us at at dayoneleadership. That's D-A-Y, the number one leadership on Twitter. We'll keep you up to speed with everything that we're doing. As we head towards the end of the year and the temperatures, at least where I am, get a little bit colder, stay warm. Keep being good to one another. Remember, this is day one. Every day is day one. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.